and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I am Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us as we go deep with intentional performers. Today, we chat with Chris Nowinski, who is also a PhD. So I guess it's Dr. Nowinski. Uh, But Chris has really been at the forefront of the concussion crisis that we are in, unfortunately, uh, in the in the sports world today. Uh, Chris is the CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. If you don't know about them, they do amazing work on trying to educate, uh, trying to af- affect policy, public policy, uh, just reaching out to organizations. Uh, he also is involved with Boston University's CTE Center, which is really at the forefront and is really in the middle of doing all kinds of research on traumatic brain injuries and the CTE disease that is creeping up in a number of sports. But Chris is really mainly focused on football. As you'll hear, he played football at Harvard where he was a very successful lineman and was also a wrestler with WWE. He experienced a uh, brain injury there and it actually caused him to retire. So Chris is somebody who is very passionate about this issue that, you know, up until 10 years ago really wasn't mainstream. And you'll hear Chris and I talk about concussions and the history of concussions. uh, And he'll certainly educate me and educate you on how long it's been out there and actually that it's been around for longer than I think most people think. But really in the last 10 years, Chris has led uh, a big fight to try to educate people on CTE, to try to educate them on traumatic brain injuries. Uh, he's reaching out to all kinds of people. He's really focused on youth sport and, and what we're doing in youth sport to continue that education. Uh, and if you're in the youth sport space, you know that concussions are still something that people are trying to grapple with, figure out exactly how they diagnose them and what they do once the concussion occurs. And, and that is actually taking place not only at the youth sport, but also in collegiate and pro sports. So Chris is going to get into that uh, with us today and it'll be a a riveting conversation. Uh, Chris is somebody who's extremely bright but you will find pretty quickly that he likes to align his passion with his intelligence and uh, he'll share his story and uh, times in his life where maybe his values or his purpose wasn't in alignment with what he was doing for a living and he's very clear and very passionate about what he's doing now and his ability to impact change and really make us live as a healthier society. So uh, Chris is a knowledgeable person. He's you know, been in some ways a uh, revolutionary person when it comes to uh, health and especially brain health uh, in sport. And he has a view that is definitely worth sharing. So I'm really excited to bring Chris to you and to share how he's being intentional with his life and, and the things that he's, he cares most about and that he values. And as we dig deep with Chris, I really want you to think about how you see the world and what ways you are making an impact or how you can make an impact. And if you like this conversation, we really would appreciate it if you share it on your social media, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, I'm starting to put stuff out on Instagram, so hopefully you're seeing that. And also, if you can like uh, the podcast over on iTunes, it really means a lot to us. Write us a review. And uh, we just really appreciate all the people that are listening and commenting and are following this podcast. It means the world to me. And without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Chris Nowinski. 
Chris, first, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'd love to start with just finding out your backstory, where you were brought up, what family life was like for you as a kid, uh, football, all that good stuff. Yeah, no, I had a very lucky upbringing, Brian. I uh, grew up in, uh, I was born in Oak Park, Illinois. My dad worked in food service at Northwestern, so I spent a lot of time there growing up. And, uh, you know, my parents uh, were together and healthy and happy and older sister and a younger sister and moved to Arlington Heights when I was 10 uh, for the better school system. And, and in Illinois, uh, are you in a suburban, rural? Where so Oak, Oak Park is the first town west of Chicago. Okay. Uh, and then Arlington Heights is about 20 miles northwest of the city. And so uh, it, was, it, was, it was great. Everything was great, and uh, was was very lucky. And you know, sports was a big part of my life growing up. Uh, football wasn't early. I mean, it was I was a soccer player, I was a baseball player, and I was a basketball player. Uh, but I was also a science Olympiad kid and a mathlete, and uh, just sort of like doing everything. Sports, dad into it, mom into it. Sounds like you were pretty busy. Uh, dad was into it. Dad, dad uh, walked down the pitch at Michigan State. And my mom never, you know, had some athletic skills and never saw her do too much. But her, 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 her father was a, sp- a sprinter. So, um, you know, they were always there to support me, whether it was, you know, driving me around to practices or taking me to museums or getting me what I needed so that, uh, you know, I was able to, to have a comfortable life growing up. And in the math science side, what was the interest in that? Where did that come from? Uh, I don't know why I was I was always a young nerd. I we were going to NASA camp in some summer, and you know I just uh, I was always into it. Read science fiction nonstop, and uh, and you know math just came naturally, and I liked the competition of it, and so I just I just sort of engaged in the hard the, the things that people you know invited me to. I, I I grew up in a school system that had a good support program for for kids like me that wanted to try extra things. Were your sisters like that? Uh, not as much, not as much. Both very smart, both uh, social workers. Um, but uh, my younger sister was an accomplished athlete. But uh, yeah, I was a sort of the man thing. No, with, with no brothers, there was no mold to follow. Uh, so you know, my I just remember my competition was my cousins in Milwaukee. We'd go up to Milwaukee, where my dad grew up, every weekend and and play sheep's head. And then they were a little older than me and way better athletes. And would, me up and remind me that I was, you know, king of a very small castle at home. And you mentioned competition a couple of times. So competitiveness from a young age, or is that something that came later to you? Uh, I think competitive, competitiveness from a young age. I, I like to play. I like to compete. I like to win. I, I was never that good. I was a, a very much a late bloomer as an athlete. Uh, I was actually, you know, cut from my seventh grade middle school basketball team. I uh, didn't, didn't make it. And, uh, and, and that was like, and then, then I grew taller and grew thinner and, and became a real athlete. Got it. What was high school like for you? So were you playing multi-sports, and, and what was that experience like for you? Yep, multi-sports. It was uh, So my mom finally let me play tackle football in high school, and I, I wanted to play because friends were playing. It was, I loved watching it on TV, it, and it looked cooler than, than soccer, and I probably didn't have much of a future in soccer anyway. You're like uh, the opposite of me. I, I was good at soccer, and then I – I quit when I probably should have stayed with it because I'm not not built to play some of the other sports. But yeah, anyway. I, I was did best mom, as a goalie, which is very goalie. boring. Did mom <laughs> not let you play football in middle school? Yeah, I tried to play in seventh and eighth grade because I had a friend who played. Okay. And it was cool to play for the Cowboys, Arlington Heights Cowboys. But uh, no, she thought she was too worried about injury, not brain injury, but but injury in general. So I was being basketball, uh, you know, captain of the football team, captain of the basketball team, played baseball until I hurt my shoulder. And then took in the springs. I did uh, two 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 seasons of theater and one season of track. Theater? Where does that come from? I have no idea. Uh, I don't know where the performance side came from. I mean, I'm guessing on my mom's side of the family, there was always a lot of interest in theater, and theater was discussed. But I never really did anything until I tried out for Pirates of Penzance. But of course, I needed my shoulder reconstructed. Uh, like two weeks into the production, so I couldn't. <laughs> I never actually got to do it. I had to wait till West Side Story as a senior. I had a friend in high school who was our, our theater star, and he's still in New York as an actor. And he broke his wrist, and I think you know doing something. And he's in the hospital, and he gets in the elevator, and he's so mad that he's gonna have to miss the play because he's gonna have a cast. 
that he punches the elevator, walks back into the doctor's room, breaks the other wrist. So, you know, I double cast in the play. Um, wow. It's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> but you sound like you were someone who just, you liked being active in things. You liked performing. You've got theater. You've got mathlete. You've got athlete. Um, so you were just a, a busy kid. Would you say you were constantly doing something? I was trying. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was overscheduled, over busy. You know, I took I took schoolwork very seriously, and I took my sports seriously. And but there's still enough time to watch way too much TV and play way too many video games. So tell me about uh, football. So in high school, you started playing, and what position? What did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? All that good stuff. So football, it uh, yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to be. Like I actually remember sort of embarrassingly as a freshman. You know, I'm six foot three, hundred and sixty pounds, and I. Uh, you know, the coach first day, I was like, all right, you know, jump in the line of what position you want to play, and we'll start talking to you. And, uh, you know, I'm like, well, I want to be a star. So I jump into the wide receiver line. <laughs> and, um, and, like, uh, coach walks over, and it's like, you know, 50 kids in the wide receiver line and 10 want to be offensive yeah. linemen. Because no one wants to be an offensive lineman. They walk me over, and he goes, you know, this might be more your fit. <laughs> and so he was right. But, um, but I, I remember on the freshman team, you know, we started with two days, and, and by the second practice, the coach was like, all right, you're going to be the captain. Here's the here's the playbook. And I had, I had it memorized between the first two practices, 100, 100 different plays. Varsity, and, JV? No, freshman. Just played freshman. freshman. Sophomore year, I got moved up under the – played middle linebacker on the varsity when somebody got hurt halfway through the season. And then did you down. like football from the beginning? I did. I did. I mean, you know, football has a lot to offer. You know, you got you know, your 50 best friends. You're part of a, a, a roving gang. Um, get to hit people, and at that point, I was the biggest guy in the field, and so I got to hit people more than they hit me. And they were smaller than you. Yeah, no, I mean, it, football's awesome if you're the biggest guy, you're yeah. the best guy, and it gets harder as you get older. <laughs> you run into more people or can hit you as hard as you can hit them. But uh, it was a fun start. You know, you know there's also this, the social side of it. It's, it's really interesting how people just identify you as a tough person because you, know, you play, you get to wear your jerseys on Friday. I got caught up into the whole mystique. So, um, so yeah, so, so enjoyed it, had, had good coaches and, um, and good friends. Any values that were passed down to you from, from sports or even from theater or from being a mathlete and sort of your upbringing? Um, val yeah, we don't, I don't usually speak in, in, in concise values. We don't have like a family motto or, um, you know, it was, you know, like my dad was very good about not being an overly bear, overbearing at all on sports, and he usually just would tell me uh, if I'd complain about stuff. He'd always go, hey, you know, you always think you know better, but you know you should listen to your coaches. And, and uh, you know, had a high, you know, we all have high opinions of ourselves when we're thirteen-year-old athletes. Um, but you know, what I learned in sports is to you know to work hard. I enjoyed I enjoyed the competition. I actually in high school I hated practice. I was not a good practicer. And that's something I had to learn later. Um, and it hurt me in college because I came in as such a, as such a you know, it was it was easy. And I wasn't challenged. I wasn't challenged. I didn't work hard. So You're more talented, bigger. You could just get away with your athleticism in high school. Right. right. Values from parents? What, what were, if, I know you said it's not necessarily like a, a motto, um, but what would you say your value, your parents either showed you uh, by example or passed down to you from a value standpoint? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I don't usually get into, I, I never usually talk about this stuff. <laughs> just, I don't put, put in the books and all that, but give you a, like a, just a small taste. Like, you know, I grew up going to Catholic church, with the family and, and, um, you know, my parents, you know, I, I come, my mom's a social worker, my sister's a social worker. There's a big value of, of helping people, of, of, of giving back, of, of volunteering, of, um, you know, helping your neighbors, helping your friends, helping your family when they needed it. And that was, that was a bit of the mantra. My dad was a very stoic guy who, uh, you know, always did the right thing and uh, expected you to, but just didn't talk about it very much. So character and service, you know, helping people and, and just doing the right thing, keeping it simple. Yeah, yeah. My dad was an ROTC guy in college, and you know, uh, we're at a, I'm at a military conference, so you know, he was a first lieutenant for a period of time in the army, and yeah, he was just a, he was just, he was the oldest of uh, uh, three boys. Who uh, his mother passed away and he was young, so he grew up real fast, and that was just. Uh... So yeah, he just got things done. He went to work. He made sure we always had what we needed, and and he didn't he didn't party. He didn't put, ever put himself first. So it was an interesting sort of uh, household to grow up in. Our mom was 
very invested in our life, making sure we stayed on the right track and did a good job. Because I remember, you know, I never, I never, you know, uh, you know, touched a beer until college, and it, and I grew up in a culture where that happened a lot. But I, I, she did a good job keeping me away from it because a lot of friends, you know, went down that wrong path of of getting into the parties and the and the drinking and drugs, and it's wild to see how that changed their trajectory. So even though you're part of the football scene and you like wearing the jersey at school and you like sort of the identity that's there, you don't necessarily go all in in every capacity to that extent and you still sort of have these core values that your parents or your mom instilled in you to, to make decisions. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's fair. All right, so, but you're, you're somewhat talented. It sounds like you're somewhat intelligent uh, in school. So you end up at Harvard. What was that like for you? Uh, both athletically, academically, and I guess I should say thirdly, also socially. Um, yeah, I was very lucky that when I was getting recruited that, you know, I had the Ivies and then I had like some Mac schools and, you know, I actually thought it'd be cool to be, have a scholarship somewhere and be a D1 player. And uh, my coach, you know, was smart enough to pull me aside and say, you know, with, with the options you have, you know, a place like Harvard invites you, you just don't, you don't sell them no. And so I didn't, and um, and Harvard was a Harvard was like the Disneyland of colleges. I mean, it's uh, you're hanging out with the smartest people in the world, who are all passionate, and inspired, and you're doing sort of sports and academics the right way in the sense that you get to do top acad- or top sports. You know, you know, you think of the majors of football and basketball, but even you know the other sports. You know, Harvard has a lot of national champions all the time, but. Uh, you know, football was very serious. It was very good. Um, you know, it was the third class of Tim Murphy was still there. You know, so it was like rebuilding time, and it was uh, it was fun. You know, I, I still am in touch with a ton of my teammates from Harvard. Uh, I mean, a lot of great guys get get uh, pulled in there. So, so sports was great, but it wasn't so overemphasized. You had to sacrifice academics, and so truly a student athlete. Yeah, I mean, so the Ivy League is one of the last places you can do that, where you can play the you know the top sports plus get the top education and no one gives you a hard time you know I'm amazed that in the last you know five years or so how many uh, you know five or ten years how many former hard football players or doctors right who are missing practices to go to their labs because that's their pre-med and, and it's just it's just allowed because they're, they're, they're looking at it a different way and they want to hear the stories of the D1 players and how they get sort of used up and abused and thrown away and only now are we even starting to consider things like four-year scholarships and you know rather than get tossed if you get hurt I mean, it's just crazy. So, well, and even lifetime scholarships, right, where some universities are saying, right. you know, you can come back and finish your education, which I think is a step in the right direction. It's interesting you say that because Kyle Shanahan, the head coach for the San Francisco 49ers, just put an article out where he talked about transferring from Duke to Texas and University of Texas and having the dilemma of whether he missed, like, a final exam or went to a scrimmage for football. Hmm. And his whole thing was, I, was at, I left Duke for Texas for a reason, and it was for football and make no mistake about it and I knew I could fail that exam and still get a D in the class and I'd be okay but he was basically saying how he wants football players in the NFL that are just as committed to football as he was in college Um, so there's definitely that dynamic that exists and it's it's big time and there's jobs and all that stuff he's he's a coach's son right absolutely yeah well it's good when you have that sort of golden parachute to throw away your Education, I do not agree with that in yeah. the least bit that he should be steering athletes in that direction. Yeah, and I, yeah. but that's of course that's because that's how he makes his money. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it, I think I think he was also so tunnel vision on football being it, and that was sort of his thing. Uh, and I'm not going to get into right or wrong, but it's it's it is real. And and then there are other universities that are somewhere in between, right? Where you know you are going to go to class, but you're also going to be expected to be here and and. and be here at a high, high level. Um, so those things are interesting to me. Um, and then from an academic standpoint at Harvard, how did you handle that um, being on campus? Look, it's, it's Harvard. It's not, you know, I went to Syracuse, good school, but it's Harvard. Everybody that gets in there and there's been studies done on imposter syndrome and Harvard, I think, is one of the places where a lot of people get there and they feel like, what am I doing here? Like, I'm not that smart or I'm not, right. you know, this or that. And 
Uh, actually, the podcast before yours, I interviewed a professor at Harvard. He's part of the Harvard Law School. And so we talked about some of the stuff and what that name means and what comes with that. Did you have any feelings about that being on campus and also being a jock? Yeah. Uh, well, it's not the jock thing. I mean, it, it was funny. We were, we were the – some people saw us as not belonging. Like I remember hearing like – Fresh, first year freshman week in the in the line uh, to get lunch and like these two like we all roll in and we're you know big and sweaty and you know coming out back from practice and and some, somebody turns to somebody in front of us and goes oh I thought we left those guys back in high school I don't go sit at the jock table um, but it no it was it was uh, what was special about Harvard is that you know you, you you meet some in high school. You know you're you're in the top of your class. You're gonna end up there, and so you're at the top. At Harvard, you know, you find there's just like so many other additional levels of smart that that you know you realize where your place is in the universe. So so I did fine academically. I graduated with with honors, which is not the biggest accomplishment in the year of great inflation. But I can't imagine what the kids who got straight A's actually the way their brains work and how they're able to do things. And then the kids who don't get good grades but accomplish great things outside the classroom or succeed in other ways. So it's a different level of smart, different level of commitment, different level of everything. So it's a, it's no surprise to see those people go on to do to do great things. I would love to unpack that a little bit. So you hit on smart commitment. What are other traits that you've seen either in people that you're friends with at Harvard that are doing great things, or either uh, even other people you've you've been in other realms of elite performance? Uh, are there commonalities or traits that you see uh, across the board? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a lot of the stuff you'll you'll hear from other people that you start to pick up. It's that you know that interest in constantly learning and constantly challenging yourself, and that definitely that interest in, in uh, having no fear of failure. I mean, that's like the one thing that like you see kids fight. I mean, I, I fought myself. I mean, I fear failure so badly that to give you <laughs> doing like my 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 uh, time in fifth grade, fear of failure. I. Um, I once, I'm the kind of kid who once, uh, I transferred schools as a new kid. I was smarter than other kids, so I won the spelling bee in my class all the time. And then there'd be a school spelling bee, and I always won. And finally, I got so much backlash, and everyone's so annoyed that I kept winning, I started throwing the spelling bee. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that I wouldn't have a lot of pressure. Wait, but, so, but, but, like, to me, that idea of sticking out versus fitting in, yeah. that came in fifth grade where it's like, maybe I'm sticking out too much. And I don't want to necessarily put myself out there that much. Right. Is that what that was? No, yeah, and that sort of probably was influenced my switch from like a, a, a math late and science Olympian in, high, in, in middle school to being a jock in high school because it was an easier track and people responded to you better. Yeah, they almost, and, and there it's okay to be a show off. There it's okay to be just better than people. But I think a lot of, look, and I'm going to generalize it, but a lot of women and girls go through that, right? Where, you know, they feel like they're not supposed to be smart and they try to dumb themselves down and uh, it really hurts them and, and there's challenges there. Um, but yeah. but go to go back to your original yeah. question then, uh, to you know, where that led to um, the feel of fear of failure and fear of success is sort of two, two sides of the same coin. The fear of failure part helped me appreciate in college that there were always going to be people better than me at stuff. And mm -hmm. they're always going to, you know, so that, that sort of became no longer a fear. It's sort of like, you know, it's not are you the best it's can you compete and, and can you get there and do you have fun doing it and so i tried a lot of things like doing more even more theater in, in, in college when you know it's a terrible dumb jock with no actual skill set but i just enjoyed it and so you go out and, and make a fool of yourself and it's a good time which is partially what led to my later professional careers what were you majoring in i studied sociology and so part of that was to <laughs> yeah the degree that you graduated in now now what degree that's for me at least when i graduated i was like all right who wants to hire me and um, oh, I wasn't worried about that. You weren't. No, it, it's at Harvard. There you go. <laughs> Let it out. At Harvard, the, well, Let the, it out. the, the joke, <laughs> the joke, which is often good on television, is at Harvard. Uh, it doesn't matter what you yeah. what you majored in. Thirty Rock had a great joke where one of the kids went to Harvard, and, and they're like, they're like, you know, he's a writer on the show, and they're like, what did you major in? And, and he goes, um, first, it's called a concentration, right. and then, <laughs> and then, get it right, and it was something ass. completely irrelevant. He goes, why? You know, why did you? It doesn't matter what you major in. Yeah. But I studied sociology partially to just unpack what I thought was important in the world, because you know, you grow up in a certain place in a certain time, 
And a lot of the stuff, stuff I studied was like sociology of religion because I could not just, I couldn't wrap my head around why everyone was so committed to their religion, the one they were born into. And so I, and I, and I like just chose their framework for understanding the world. And so it was good for me to sort of see how our belief system was, you know, where it's influenced, where it comes from and how we all sort of live uh, with this understanding of the way the world works that, that, um, may not be true and may not be real and may not be empirical. And so it helped me sort of strip down what was the difference between what was important to my community and what was important to my parents and what was important to my family and my friends versus what was important to me. And so um, that I think that, that was why I liked it. It sort of gave me a new way to look at the world that was my own. So I like sociology a lot, loved it. Um, but you're different from me because I guess there was a job for you when you graduated. I got into life sciences consulting. Yeah, right? what the heck is that? Uh, so, you know, it, it was nice. It was the original interview was through Friends of Harvard Football. And I didn't, so I didn't need a science background. I just had to be able to do the work. And, and it was a, at the time a small firm, now a much, much larger firm called Trinity Partners, where a lot of the projects I was on at the time was they, they were hired by pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, you know, to help them understand their, their markets, their products, their their ability to, like, I remember a fun project where some company bought, you know, owned a molecule that could have potentially worked in six different diseases, and you can only really, you know, invest in going to one to the FDA, and so you have to invest, you know, $500 million in all this research, and they said, well, which one is going to be best for business if we succeed based on our chances of success versus the rest of the market versus the size of the market versus the you know the dosing regimens and so it's sort of like a fun sort of math you know it was a fun research project that to try to predict what would make the most money but then at the same time i felt like i was i started to feel like i was renting my brain to you know capitalism that wasn't actually about necessarily what's best for patients it was more about what best for profits and, and I thought that doesn't need to be how I need to spend my life even though that's a job someone has to do can we go back one step so we did gloss over football in college yeah a little bit I'm just curious because you're playing at a high level uh did you do anything to set your mind uh on game day or you mentioned earlier like eh, I didn't really have to work that hard in high school practice wise but then I got to college it was a whole different beast yeah. <laughs> uh, what did you do mentally to either prepare for practice or to prepare for games uh I don't know. I don't remember. Probably not enough. I wasn't a big ritual guy. Um, I, I I think towards the end I started to, like I remember in high school I was super excitable, <laughs> and so I'd be like fired up all day and on adrenaline all day for that game, and then you'd be like tired by the time the game came around. So I had a very calm regimen of just uh, you know I was a defensive tackle, so it wasn't like I had to remember plays or anything complex. It was read and react and just uh, come in with the right uh, frame of mind of. of you know, wanting to, to run people over. So any fear? Uh, I mean, there's probably fear, you know, my sophomore year, someone else got hurt. And so I got moved up into the rotation and, and the fear of, of, of embarrassing myself out there when I, I wasn't, I wasn't ready. It wasn't that big and strong. And I, you know, and I, and I wasn't as committed like my freshman, sophomore year, you know, I wasn't that committed to the, to the sport. I thought I was there to go to school. And I, you know, I enjoyed football, but I wasn't putting in the extra time that other guys were. And uh, and that once once I was sort of thrust into the varsity, I realized, okay, this is real and this is important. And this is fun. And I like these guys, and I need to work harder. So what changed for you is that the opportunity was right there, and it's like, oh, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it for my brothers next to me, and uh, for, you know, take advantage of this opportunity and compete and fulfill my potential, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and then that also like there there is that that nice element of, of that free constant coaching you get of uh, I had great coaches and uh, you know some very memorable you know Tim Murphy was amazing Hank Hughes was my D-line coach freshman sophomore year who left quite an impression and changed my work ethic how? Uh, he, he he would just call me out for being soft accountable and, yeah he would call he would when I when I wasn't running out of drill or something we watched it on film like he'd replay it back and just said you were you're never going to succeed with this sort of you know attitude and he was right and it, and it took enough took a lot of reps of saying those things for me to sort of turn the corner and then be then become known as a, a hard worker in the sense of I didn't stand out for not being a hard worker anymore you said I got these sort of free coaches um, I don't think a lot of college athletes would say that. 
about their coaches. Why did you choose that way of thinking of it? Well, just the idea that you've got somebody every day giving you real-time feedback yeah. on your behavior and your mindset. You know, It's sort of like you, know, you don't get that ever again. And so if they're good, it's amazing. If they're not good, it can be detrimental. But uh, I had some really good ones who constantly gave you that feedback, so the learning curve was just sharper. Awesome. All right, go back to um, you know after college. So what, what was your next step after you realized, like, hey, this doesn't really fit my purpose or what I'm passionate about, and um, it doesn't align maybe with my values or whatever that is? Yeah. Um, well, it just so happened that the uh, the owner of that firm, uh, John Corcoran, was a uh, was also a wrestling fan. He'd, he'd worked with people in that world from a prior job, and so we would talk about it because I got into watching wrestling just my senior year at school and thought it was a fun, like, great entertainment looked really fun so you didn't grow up being into wrestling it was just just in college where you got into it yeah I I was aware of it because of my cousins but I didn't see it very often um and it was uh he it was just like over a lunch we were talking about how much fun it is and he goes you know I bet you'd make a good wrestler and he just had this sort of like moment of insight of like my personality my size and he's like yeah you know you could do it and I'm like and at first I thought it was weird then I'm like you know what it would actually be fun like I've never you know whenever I watch wrestling I always let's see like those guys look like they're having more fun than like anyone else doing their job and so it was you know and sort of not having this passion job I was like I might as well go do something really fun uh and see where that goes and so he he once I was actually, yes, I worked for him before senior year, and then I got some looks from NFL teams, which was surprising to me. Um, and I only found out after my junior year, like, oh, you might be scouted. You might want to spend more time in the weight room. So, uh, and we were also you, had. Would you have been interested in doing that? No, I wasn't interested at all uh, until I was told after my junior season, like, people have been calling. And, I was like, and then we had a superstar in our team. My, my roommate, Isaiah Kazavinsky, ended up playing eight years in the league and was a fourth round pick. So, we, a few of us sort of tra- drafted off of the scouts who came in to see him, but I was one of the four. And so, um, but I wasn't drafted, you know, and, and no surprise. And so once I wasn't drafted, the guy made a call and uh, and got me, a, suddenly I got a, I've got tickets to Atlanta for a tryout at the power plant at WCW. And, and I went, flew down and Mr. Wonderful beat me up for a day. <laughs> sounds to sounds see if I had a future. <laughs> and, uh, Wait, but time out. So if you had been drafted or if, you know, free agency, someone had said, hey, Chris, we, we want you, and you had the option to go get beat up by Mr. Wonderful, do you know which of those paths you would have taken? I would have tried wrestle, uh, the football first. I just I was pretty sure that I didn't have a future in it. And it was incredibly painful for me at that time. I was getting uh, cortisone shots on a regular basis to, to even get the workouts through for the NFL teams and my shoulders. I'm like, well, i got to keep – I gotta, you know, I gotta see where this goes, but so I'm getting beat up. So why don't I go to wrestling? Which it was yeah. just a different, it was a different <laughs> game. Wrestling's not supposed to beat you up in the same way. Yeah. So I, so literally, I had to. Um, once I did this thing with Mr. Wonderful, and they're like, "You have this might be good. You know, go get your shoulder fixed and come back." I had to get a shoulder surgery and a six month rehab, and then by that time, WCW was on its way out of business. So uh, I had this choice to make of, okay, well. I can't, you know, this this open door in WCW is no longer there. What am I going to do? And so I end up enrolling in Killer Kowalski's wrestling school and, and, and going nights and weekends to, to wrestling uh, while working a full-time job. So you're a Harvard graduate, sociology graduate, which doesn't matter. Um, but, yeah, what did, like, mom and dad and other people around you say when you're pursuing this dream to become a wrestler? Um, I didn't. I didn't ask a whole lot. I, I literally told them, "Don't, don't give me the feedback. You don't get it. You're not going to get it. I'm, I'm keeping the real job. I'm always going to pay my bills. I'm not going to come to you for money. So just, uh, just see where this goes." And so my parents were great about it. They thought it was completely weird, but they didn't tell me until and they didn't get it until they saw me like at the Rosemont Horizon or the Allstate Arena, you know, in front of ten thousand people. Like, oh, I, I see why he did this. Are you a risk taker? I guess so. I guess my my past would show you in some ways I'm a risk taker certainly with you know, professionally yes okay. and so wrestling what was that like for you it was awesome um it you know talking about this with someone yesterday it, it gave you back the camaraderie you lost in, in from sports right yeah I'm back to having a locker room of, of 50 of the most interesting people in the world who are all you know working towards a common goal but all you know football or wrestling is a little more of an individual 
event in some, in some ways, but uh, it was uh, it was a fascinating culture and a fascinating world. I mean, one of the great things, you know, I, I was only in there wrestling for three years, but the if you get behind the curtain, the wrestling outlook on the way the world works is actually the way the world works, and it sort of uh, teaches you um, so much about human psychology and, and human emotion and, and how and why people react to certain things. And so, Can you unpack that a little more for me? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm not with you. Like I, I just am having a trouble because I'm not behind that curtain. Right. So no, it's, it's sort of hard to explain, and it's a fun subject to read up on. But um, whether it's... Um, you know the, the 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 microcosm is like how do you how do you make people care about a match and a character and and that sort of thing, but also just like how do you well I mean I think the, the idea is that um, you know wrestling is you know the, the phrase that's commonly used that wrestling is a work right wrestling is a fake Re- wrestling is literally a work on trying to play into someone's emotions and and give them a show and give them entertainment, but at the back end of that it's because you're trying to get money and so. So for me, from a wrestling perspective, to put this to something that's, that's more acute, right, and uh, happening today, when people are debating right now uh, players taking a knee at the at, uh, at NFL games and the national anthem, I don't look at it like this is a discussion of, of patriotism and right and wrong. I look at it as, from a sociology perspective and a wrestling perspective, of where the hell did the national anthem come from to be sung at football games, and why is that happening? And you realize it was all a move by the NFL to seem patriotic and to make the sport seem more grand because now you're singing this song before. So it doesn't have any place to be there in the first place. Then the anthem happening on the field is now didn't, wasn't a thing until 2009. And that was because it's all a marketing gimmick, right? It's all about the NFL wanting to make you think they're patriotic and have again more of an emotional tie because you you feel you, you love our you love our military and if your military is on the field you'll love them and they, you know, and you flip that and you go God can, do you remember that the NFL was actually charging the military money to to do things on the field millions of dollars to promote it so you realize like that's all a work right this is none of this matters it's it this was all a plan to pull more money out of NFL fans' pockets by, by having positive associations here and there. And so that's, and it doesn't, and it has, it, it shouldn't be happening anyway. It has nothing to do with sports. Military has nothing to do with sports. And so that's how it sort of helps you see the world is that you just, you realize it's all a work. This is all about getting your money and nothing more. Yeah, I was thinking follow the money is a phrase that people use to say, hey, you want to find out what's really going on, follow the money. So you would go back to wrestling and say, you know, your job as a wrestler is to, in some ways, isn't any different than a musician or an actor who they need to go on stage and they need to convince the audience that it's not rehearsed and right. that this is the first time you've ever seen them and then they need to be able to connect with that audience. I had a guy who was in TV, who's a TV personality, and he said to me on the podcast, he said, Brian, you think I'm the same off air that I am on there? He's like, no. And he's and he did it on the podcast. He completely transformed his energy and his excitement. And <laughs> he's like, that's me there. But then when I come off, I'm kind of like a chill dude. I mumble. Uh, you know, he sort of started doing it. And I just think it's fascinating because I think we all need to transform when we're on and we need to set our mind when we're on. And how we go about doing that is interesting to me. So when you're in that behind the curtains and you're backstage, what would some guys do to set their mind to get themselves ready to get on that stage? Well, you know, I want to take that in a different question because I don't have good rituals and good good stories on that. But you, what you did help it reminded me of one of the great challenges that I had coming into wrestling. That's that's actually I think considered mildly interesting, worth talking about, is um, learning to separate yourself from your character and learning to separate your private and your public personas, which is what the actor was talking about. Because I came into wrestling through a reality television show on MTV called Tough Enough, where there was so early in the reality show days, like we were not in on it. Like it was literally, we're filming you 24 hours a day, and then we're gonna edit it to say whatever we want, and, and, and you're, you're gonna see it in real time with the rest of the public, which was crazy, and I can't believe I agreed to it. But, um, and it was a struggle for me, but it was also a huge advantage for my career that I ended up being the bad guy in the show. And while I was, you know, still, you know, team player, well respected by the people I worked with, and the and the WWE folks on the show, I came off as this arrogant jerk. 
and it was edited so well uh, that that everyone thought I was that guy, and I had to live with this thing where suddenly like my reputation was in tatters because everyone thought this reality show, which we now know are fake, at the time they thought was real. And I was able to sort of invert it. And once I sort of came to terms with the people are hating me because they, they're here to hate, they have to hate somebody. And so they, I have all this now uh, content and baggage and memories to build off of to take this character even a crazier place and make people hate me even more. And that was actually why I was successful at the beginning of my wrestling careers because people like to comment that I had what they called natural heat. Because people watched a show where they thought I was a bad guy and they thought it was real and they didn't think it was fake, I had an advantage over every other wrestler who was a character because I didn't have a character. I had that guy who was real. And once I appreciated that that guy's not me, but I have to, te but I have to let everyone think it's me, um, it, it helped me achieve uh, a little more success and, 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 and be happier in my day-to-day -day life because people would react on the street to me in very mean ways. And I had a reputation that I was a terrible person. And, and so, it, but it was, and it was even so well done by the people who produced that show that, you know, the, I didn't win the show and there was a six month lag before I was hired. And, and Al Snow was the main trainer on that and the guy I owe a lot to. And he told me, he goes, it was a good thing you had a delay because the wrestlers didn't realize that the show was fake either. And so had you shown up in the locker room, they would have run you out of this company right away because they thought you were a bad seed. <laughs> it's fascinating. There's just so much to, for me, going on in my brain. Number one is the idea of authenticity. And I think a lot of people don't realize, especially in a sport like football, um, you know, who Richard Sherman needs to become when he gets on that field is who Richard Sherman needs to become, right? right. Ray Lewis, pick, pick your football gladiator. Um, but they can be authentically them in their role and what their role calls for. And that doesn't mean that they're the same person off the field. Um, right. and, and so I think we tend to blur those together. And we don't take into account that in some sports it's violent and there needs to be a certain level of aggression and what they need to do to get themselves able to perform, which, by the way, is then in some ways a selfless act to help support their teammates, maybe to help support their family. Um, it comes from a place of serving in some cases, not mm -hmm. all. Um, so that was the first thing is like authenticity in your role. Um, and I think we think of authentic as being, oh, you're just consistently the same all the time. But authenticity can show itself in a lot of different ways. And then the other cool thing that you hit on, which is who you are and what you do, uh, are, they can be separate. And they almost are separate for everybody. And in this country especially, I think we tend to overvalue what people do and we lose track of who they are. Mm -hmm. And so even before we started this podcast, you said to me, you're like, oh, how am I going to talk to myself for about myself for this long? I want to talk about what I do, which we're going to get to any minute now. Um, but for me, where my passion lies is finding out who people are. And so it's, it's cool to hear your story and, and to hear you toggle with, well, I'm a villain here, but wait, I'm still a good person with these values that come from my upbringing of doing the right thing and treating people well and serving others. And so that to me is fascinating. I think athletes sometimes get lumped into that too, where people just see them and say, oh, I like that guy. Oh, I don't like that guy. And they base it based on what they're seeing on the field and they're missing what that person's doing when the lights are off. Um, right. And, and that brings up the question of who cares who they are off the field. Like we have to remember all these sports, we, we put way too much into these sports. They're just entertainment. They're just a distraction. When you're a kid, sports are about exercise and about development of you, and that's wonderful. And when they became, when they became professionalized and they became money, they became a thing that they aren't really meant to be. It's not a pure thing. I, but I remember, like, even in my work now, like, growing up thinking, like, whenever there was, like, a social justice issue or a right-wrong issue in, in football, that like the I always sided with the commissioner in the NFL. Like they were the our big arbiters of justice. We got to watch the legal system and the justice system operate. Now I realize what a fraud it is. Yep, the owner's <laughs> boss. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, you know, that's what I thought dictated the right and wrong of what sports would do. And so they take advantage of that sort of naivete that we all have. That there's this is much bigger than it is because they've been so successfully marketing it for so long. All right, so I want to get into what you're up to now because I think I know that's a passion of yours um, and I want to give you a, a platform to share it, to tell the story, how you get involved with it, um, and hopefully that'll make you feel a little more comfortable as we sort of wind down here is like, <laughs> you know, talking about what you do and, and how that's become a passion of yours and you're traveling all over the place trying to uh, do what you do. Change the world. Um, so 
I got into this, so my big change in life was you know, that 14 years ago now where I got a bad concussion with WWE, and I had to uh, hang it up. And uh, at the time, uh, I was very, very interested in um, trying to get better and get back to work. I loved the work. I loved the people. I could not figure out why my head always hurt. I could not figure out why I felt nauseous. Every Did time. they diagnose you with a concussion back then? Um, they... Uh, they did diagnose me with a concussion, but I wasn't always completely honest about my symptoms um, and and how bad it was. And so uh, I, I wrestled for five extra weeks with a, uh, a, a really bad headache. And so uh, it got so bad that I developed REM behavior disorder and, and basically permanent, you know, I, I started sleepwalking, I hurt myself, it became a disaster. And so anyway, trying to get better, I ran to a guy named Bob Cantu, uh, eighth doctor I saw, a real genius on, on concussions. And he helped me start to appreciate, like, what, unpack what had happened to me. So you use that word. I've got to use that word now. Um, and what happened was, you know, I was getting concussions all the way along. I didn't realize it. I was blacking out all the time in the ring or in football. And, and if you don't take care of your concussions, it'll make the injury much worse. And I had done so much damage that now my symptoms weren't going away. And so I was like, God, you I mean every time I was seeing stars or the sky would, for me would go from blue to orange or I would forget what had happened or how I hit the ground, that that was a concussion? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, this, I've had a lot of those, so this ex maybe explains why. I, I see the logic here, but I was really offended by the idea that um, I didn't know, that I was you know, play, banging my head around for 18 or 19 years and no one ever bothered to tell me that this, by the way, you, you might ruin your career if you don't take care of these things that are actually pretty easy to take care of. And your life. Yeah, exactly. Let's not forget about that. So um, so anyway, so I, I felt like I was like in on a secret that, hey, these concussions are, are really bad and we can change it. And it's not going to be that hard and I know athletes will back it. And so why don't we do that? And so I ended up thinking, well, my genius idea to change the world is write a book because, you know, of course, if uh, the world's clamoring for a book on concussions written by a professional wrestler. So uh, I wrote the book, and of course nothing happens, and no one reads it. And so then I realized, well, I, you know, I still want to change sports. So uh, I realized a way to do that was, uh, you know, the first two football players that had ever been diagnosed with CT. And I was like, this is what's going to change everything. We need to study CT because it's an actual disease you can see. Well, when was that? Uh, book came out in 06. Uh, and then first brain I got for research was Andre Waters in 2006. And that was, again, one of those sort of, major moments that, that sort of changed my life. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll dig into that. But um, so I'm trying to get someone to pay attention to concussions. I learned Andre Waters, who I grew up watching, uh, took his life, 44-year-old college football coach, didn't make any sense uh, in my feeble mind. And so I ended up calling the medical examiner and I said, hey, you've you considered looking at him for this disease CT we're starting to see in football players. And he was like, you're nuts. Uh, and eventually, after a couple of weeks, I convinced him that Maybe there was something there, but he wasn't, you know, they don't do that research. And so they could find somebody to do that research that he would, uh, he would give me some brain fragments he'd kept so it could be studied. And so I ended up calling the doctor to the first two cases, Betty Damalo, who I'd interviewed for the book. And I said, hey, I think, you know, there's this case out there you should study. And he goes, oh, good. If you can get it for me, I will. I said, all right, well, uh, I got the mom's phone number who has to sign it over. You know, here it is. And he said, he said, I'm not calling her. And I'm like, what? And he goes, I'm, I'm not calling her. He goes, you know, if you want the brain study, you're going to have to call her. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I don't want to call her, right? And I'm sort of stuck in this moment of, I think this is going to be really important, but I'm going to call an 80-something-year-old woman and say, hey, you don't know this, but you're part of your son's brain's in a jar somewhere. And will, you, will you give it to me? And I, by the way, I'm nobody. But um, I, I'd hearken back to, uh, you know, again, having good teachers and coaches, uh, world history teacher in high school who whenever we we do uh, we do like a, a scholastic bowl type of uh, competition on knowledge and whenever he had to bet something towards the end it was always you know, god hates a coward god hates a coward you got to go for it you got to go for it and I was like oh, you know what I'll regret it forever if I don't try this so I, I called and luckily the family was amazing and they said yeah please help get us some answers and so that became like my thing was I was willing to call families after they lost somebody and say we need to study the brain to figure this thing out. And so that led to, we're now 450 brains later donated to our brain bank that we operate, the, our Concussion Legacy Foundation in Boston University and the VA. And we 
have changed uh, what we know about sports. And so, yeah, so it's, it's been an amazing tour to go. And I was talking about in this, my speech last night, the concise version is in 10 years later, we've actually changed all of sports and how we deal about concussions. And we've had to fight the NFL the whole way there. Um, sports didn't want to necessarily go there, but now that people see the data, they, they buy in. And now we've got this bigger problem of, whoops, we're finding way too much CTE in these athletes we're looking at, and we've got to wrap our arms around that. What's driving you to keep pushing forward when there are people that are constantly probably telling you to push back? Yeah, and that, that's been an interesting battle because, you know, the problem was when I wrote the book and I read into the NFL work, I remember calling my old high school, my old high school athletic trainers and telling what I was doing, and she's like, oh, yeah, the NFL just put together a committee on concussions, and they're going to figure this thing out. And then I read into what they actually were doing and the studies they were publishing, and I'm like, whoa, this is big tobacco. This is fraud. They are trying to tell us everything's fine based on some really shabby science and stuff that I could interpret even just with my few years of consulting and reading medical studies. I was like, this is trash. And I was like, wow, they're trying to really pull one over on the American people. And I just thought, that that's not right. And 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 I, whatever modest platform I had, I had you know a little bit of notoriety. I had I still had a decently functioning brain where I could figure this stuff out. And and I had a headache reminding me every day that I wasn't the only one dealing with this. And I just decided that I had like I had to try, that I wouldn't be able to rest because I was in this secret that nobody knew. That it was so. If we could just tell everyone, it would be so easy to change. And so I and I had nothing to lose. Right. I, I had. Uh, you know, I had. I was starting over. I was starting from scratch with a with a damaged brain, having to figure out, you know, if I was going to work again and what it would be. And so, um, so I went back and consulted part time to keep the lights on, and then just dug into this thing and said, "We got to fix this." And so, I think the question that you probably get asked all the time, uh, you know, I'm a father. I've got a son. He's two years old. Uh, I was just with somebody who is in Ohio, uh, which historically is a big football state. And she said her 14-year-old can't find a team. Um, and I was talking to somebody else who's at a private high school in New York, and they said, you know, we're not sure we're going to have a JV football team. Um, what do you think about football? Um, where is it going? And, and I think football gets the lion's share, um, but you're in the weeds with all this stuff. Um, we'll just riff on that for a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, th the simple answer is the way football is operated was, was, was wrong. And it got worse when we started letting kids play tackle. You know, national youth tackle ball wasn't a thing until the 1960s, and it was a terrible mistake. We should have gone back to the first 100 years of football where we thought, that's probably a bad idea to hit those kids in the head. And all sports have become high pressure, and all sports have become, you got to play more, and you gotta, it's crazy. Like, I'm glad I played sports in the 80s and 90s and not now. But the big picture is we should not be hitting kids in the head in sports at all. Uh, the idea of building skills like hitting a soccer ball at six years old is one of the dumbest things you can possibly imagine. The idea of teaching a kid to tackle another child to the ground, you know, when their head is it's so large it's inevitable to get hit every time uh, is, is insane. So we're trying to change all sports so that you don't play tackle. You don't play tackle football, you don't check an ice hockey, you don't hit a soccer ball until high school. And if we do that, we knock out most of the problem with concussions and CT. And straight, honestly, the, we're starting to get that math to say, you just don't hit them in the head while their brain's developing. <laughs> they should but be fine. But brain development until 25? Yeah, 20? but the, a lot of the, a lot, I mean, the most important stuff is happening before your teenage years. So, so the science data starting to show if we keep that brain safe and secure. We just published a study. If you started football before 12, you were twice as likely to have problems with cognition and emotion later on when you were older. Unbelievable. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, just watch a kid's development. Where are the biggest changes happening? It's usually like, you know, 9 to 12, but they go from being a kid to being like a little mini adult. Puberty. It's because their brain's actually rewiring every day in, in an enormous, crazy way. So anyway, so that's what we're trying to do. Football, you know, deserves the attention because, my God, we've diagnosed over 200 guys with CTE, and, and I'm not looking at many more. And some heroes, and it's a devastating disease. And so... I, you know, I think there, we will get the world to a place where there's no tackle before high school. And if we can get there fast enough, people might start to become comfortable with football again. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like necessarily seeing high school programs shut down. High school football is, does have value. And the beauty of high school football is that football is so dangerous, no one plays as an adult for free for fun on the weekends, right? So you're cut. Once you're, once you're not good enough to go to college, you will never put on a helmet again. Yeah, they play touch. Yeah. And My so, dad played touch till he was 45. 
five. He's like the <laughs> oldest guy in the league running little wide receiver routes. But yeah, yeah no tackle. So right. so the beauty is you'll have a short exposure to it. You still get the benefits, but much, much less risk and damage. It's like trying cigarettes for a year. It's like it's the odds of it giving you cancer versus doing it for 30 years is, is astronomically smaller. So if we can get there, and football's going to have to join us on this. Like, I'm sorry that you can't change the science. I can't change the fact that Aaron Hernandez you know, had stage 3 CT at 27, and he's not the only one at that age who's showing disease worse than we saw a generation ago. That this starting young and hitting more is, 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 is killing people. So I look forward to reforming football so that it still has a future. But right now, like, I wouldn't sign a kid up for at five years old for this system. Like you couldn't imagine a worse a worse uh, thing to do to a kid. Oh, you could, but for sports, just don't have him play tackle at five. Wait till high school. So we could go on and on, but I want to respect your time. So I just want to give you a platform to promote all the different things you're doing, so that you know there are athletes that listen to this podcast. Um, I work with a lot of athletes yeah. uh, in a lot of different sports, and. Um, you know, I think they're all trying to grapple with these things, too. Uh, I'll just give a quick anecdote, then I'll give you the platform to uh, share whatever it is you want to share. Uh, when I was in grad school, we took a neuropsychology class, and I told you this when we met for the first time at a conference. And this was eight years ago, and the professor basically said a concussion is when you're blacked out. Yeah. And that was the definition for a concussion. So I think kind of like smartphones, and we're still learning how smartphones impact us. I think concussions still, like, we, <laughs> the studies and the work that you're doing is tip of the iceberg stuff. And I, you know, unfortunately, I think as you guys continue to dive deeper and dig deeper into this, um, the reality is this stuff's new when it comes to being talked about in our society and in our sports worlds and our realms and people are still learning what do I do when a kid gets knocked and an yeah, elbow and I would say stuff. yes and no because if you actually dig into like one of the resource books as I use for my book 1905 diary of the hard football coach he's talking about concussion throughout the book he's holding players out of games he's got it all but I mean mainstream wise right well that was mainstream that was big time that was the big the national championship team sure we, it actually got we knew a lot more punch drunk Go watch On the Waterfront, 1954, Marlon Brando plays a punch-drunk boxer who's showing all the symptoms we see today. I think it's the money and the pressure of sports that suppressed that dialogue about that this stuff's really bad for these guys long-term because you can't sell a sport if you're worried about the people that are... So I think that's what happened. We knew. We've always known. We haven't learned that much more about concussions. We, we all, they're still bad. And we, you look at the medical, medical literature, you go back hundreds of years. We knew it was bad. And we said, don't do it. Um, so I think there, there's, there's a richer argument uh, you could do it for your next sociology study yeah, of, I guess how, of how we got there. But yeah, to, what, I, what I want to pro, promote before, is, sorry, I have to catch a flight, is um, you know, if you're an athlete, you know, if you want to be successful, you have to know this issue. You have to know how to protect yourself uh, so that you don't blow it by, like me, Right when you get the big stage and the opportunity, the mistakes of my past plus the mistakes of my present cost me my health and my career. If you do it right and you take the time off when you need it and you prevent the concussions where you can through the many things you can do, you'll have a better shot. So just as an athlete, you should care just for performance besides the big stuff and the long-term health and all that. Playing the long game rather than the short game yeah. for your career. Yeah, it, but yeah it's both. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. It, it's thinking beyond the next game, and that's the idea. Like we, I got to keep playing, got to keep playing. Is, is, you have to, is, is, as honorable as that is, you have to fight it. Um, and so if you want to get involved, you know, if you're an athlete, you're 18 years old or older, pledge your brain to the foundation. You know, I was just running around town here with Warren Sapp, who's just pledged his brain. And that's a great way to put skin in the game that, you know, creating a culture of brain donation is actually letting us unlock all the mysteries of what goes on long term and develop treatments. Um, if you uh, want to change the culture of your team, our Team Up Speak Up program, teamupspeakup.org, about having your coach and your captain give a speech to the team every year about how we got to look out for each other in the field. It's impossible to tell when you're concussed sometimes. It's impossible to tell when a teammate's concussed unless they say something. But if we all look out for each other, we'll pick up more and we'll keep more guys safe. I would say those are the two things we want to think about. But just even if you don't want to get involved in a program, join our email list and just get educated on this because it will be, it is going to come up in your life. And if you know the right things to do and you're able to fight your instinct to, to keep sacrificing yourself for your teammates, you will be more successful in the long run. 
Great. Well, we'll post in the show notes all that good stuff and where people can find you and, and also the work you're doing. And just want to thank you so much for your time and uh, safe travels back up to Boston and appreciate it and, and good getting to know you over, over this time. Yeah, you too, Brian. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. So I'm trying to get someone to pay attention to concussions. I learned Andre Waters, who I grew up watching, uh, took his life. 44-year-old college football coach. Didn't make any sense uh, in my feeble mind. And so I ended up calling the medical examiner, and I said, hey, you, you considered looking at him for this disease CT we're starting to see in football players. And he was like, you're nuts. Uh, and eventually, after a couple weeks, I convinced him that maybe there was something there, but he wasn't, you know, they don't do that research. And so they could find somebody to do that research that he would... Uh, he would give me some brain fragments he'd kept so it could be studied. And so I ended up calling the doctor who did the first two cases, Betty Damalo, who I'd interviewed for the book. And I said, hey, I think, you know, there's this case out there you should study. And he goes, oh, good. If you can get it for me, I will. I said, all right, well, uh, I got the mom's phone number who has to sign it over. You know, here it is. And he said, he said I'm not calling her. And I'm like, what? He goes, I'm not calling her. He goes, you know, if you want the brain study, you're going to have to call her. And I'm like, I don't want to call her, right? And I'm sort of stuck in this moment of, I think this is going to be really important, but I'm going to call an 80-something-year-old woman and say, hey, you don't know this, but you're part of your son's brain's in a jar somewhere. And will, you, will you give it to me? And I, by the way, I'm nobody. But um, I, I'd hearken back to, uh, you know, again, having good teachers and coaches, a world history teacher in high school who, whenever we, we do, uh, we, we do like a, scholastic bowl type of uh, competition on knowledge and whenever you had to bet something towards the end it was always you know, god hates a coward god hates a coward you gotta go for it you gotta go for it and i was like oh, you know what i'll regret it forever if i don't try this so I, I called and luckily the family was amazing and they said yeah please help get us some answers and so that became like my thing was i was willing to call families after they lost somebody and say we need to study the brain to figure this thing out